from the Zimmerman Symphony Center in Canton, Ohio. This is Orchestrating Change. I'm Matthew Jenkins Yarashevitz, Associate Conductor of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. And I'm Rachel Hegemeyer, President and CEO. We are so glad you could join us. This podcast navigates issues that exist in the field of classical music and the world at large. We invite you to listen with open ears as our guests share their experiences and as we discuss these often avoided topics. Today, we are joined by Lenny Borston, who spent over 40 years working for the Los Angeles Philharmonic, most recently as Director of Government and Community Affairs. Her tenure included community engagement work surrounding the opening of the Walt Disney Concert Hall and the arrival of music director Gustavo Dudamel, as well as developing the expansive Youth Orchestra LA program from the ground up a program that now serves over 1,000 young musicians each year. She also served as the Human Relations Commissioner for the City of Los Angeles under four different mayors and founded Arts for LA, a nonprofit which advocates for equitable access to the arts across all communities. Lenny Borston, welcome to Orchestrating Change. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Rachel. It's great to be here and uh, freshen up my thinking about what's happened and what's happening and what's ahead. Yeah, so if you don't mind, that was an awesome little introduction, but can you just tell us a little bit about you and your background and how you wandered into this field that we call arts management and the orchestra? I can, you know, I'm going back into ancient history and certainly, <laughs> you know, but that that's more than fine. I wanna, uh, Matthew, I wanna correct one or two things, which is uh, Yola now has probably almost 2000 young people involved. Really? And, um, wow. it, you know, I, I found I was part of a team that founded, I would say, Yola is what I'm much more comfortable saying since uh, nothing is ever done alone. Of I'm course. So there you go. Uh, your question, but where, what got me started? I was very fortunate because when I went to college, it was all, all, all open. You could, I went at the end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s, and it was the start of a number of colleges that were lending themselves to having students design their own learning programs. And I went to a school that was being founded my freshman year. I'm in the charter class of Kirkland College. Kirkland College lasted 10 years. It is now uh, an integral or integrated into the Hamilton College, which was a the men's college that's been around for a very long time in upstate New York. Kirkland was a coordinate women's college at the time. Pass-fail system, no required classes. A few, it, was, it was just very inventive and wonderful. And my major was community and the arts. And I don't know how many people can really speak to the notion that they so specifically kept on a path that started um, in their college years. But that was a very, in its own way, it's a very tumultuous time, to say the least. Um, and that was a start. Um, I, I took a senior, I, I'll, try not to, I'll try to keep this short, but I took a senior year in San Francisco and started working at the Exploratorium and again, had a lot of um, con 
Control is the wrong word, but I had a lot of leeway to try to uh, develop my the, a beginning learning path to be able to develop sound and hearing and music exhibits for a science museum. It's very lucky Frank Oppenheimer, the founder, brother of Robert Oppenheimer, who had been blacklisted for a period of time and taught science in Pagosa Springs. Um, he was a flute player. So we played flute duets together. I worked there, you know, as an intern my senior year in college. And then he said, if you if you come back to San Francisco, because I grew up in the East, if you come back, you know, you'll have a job. Think how informal that is. That was not a job interview. That was like, if you if you make it back here, you know, you can have a job. And I, and I did, and he did, and I worked there for five years. Uh, the arts management then came in because in LA, uh, at UCLA, there was an arts management program. And I always thought, and I say this as a woman, that I would... I wanted a graduate degree because I could imagine that I might leave, you know, take a break from the workforce, getting married, having kids or whatever else, and then I'd come back. Uh, and I wanted that graduate degree. And UCLA had an arts management program that was stellar and wonderful. Um, and during that arts management program, also the Coro Foundation, which is had a public affairs in the arts part of it for graduate students as well as for board members and people working in the arts different segments of it and that grounded me finally in Los Angeles and on the path to arts management upon graduation from the UCLA program before that when I moved down to LA I, I worked at KPFK and had a kind of a noontime radio program and was reading reading uh, composers' names incorrectly off of record jackets as much as anything, um, and then working on a kind of contemporary music um, music pro lunch hour program with a, a composer named Carl Stone. So everything just added up together. And by the time I graduated, we work, I was working on a conference that was related to arts advocacy. And I was almost going to work in the arts directly and for the arts advocacy organization. But the person who was at the LA Phil way back when in development was leaving and we had a development department of two and I applied for the job and that's how I started there. It is hard to believe that the biggest budget <laughs> orchestra in the US ever had a development department of two. But that well, is remarkable. It is, it is a crazy time. Yeah, and it'll, it gets a little crazier. But at the Music Center in Los Angeles at that point was the uh, unit. There was a unified fund for all the resident companies of the Music Center. So that included L.A. Opera wasn't founded quite yet, but Center Theater Group and the Master Chorale. Um, there was the civic pride in building the music center was so strong that there were many community civic leaders who were who were as in, involved in just the civic pride of having a music center in downtown LA as they were in the particular art form and then as things matured in down in downtown LA people started to realize they had to realize that they had individual passions and so eventually the unified fund broke apart but when I started working, it was in place. And so all that the LA Phil needed was a grant writer, essentially, in their development department. Wow. And this was before computers. And I had an assistant who had an IBM Selectric. And so you had to kind of retype into the little boxes for the National Endowment for the Arts and the California Arts Council and such. And that's what yeah. we did. Wow. <laughs> that's so, so I hope that gave you a path. Oh, yeah. That does. Very That's at least you. how it all got started. And and I want to comment 
I'm a graduate of Brown University, where I was uh, a part of the open curriculum. And hearing you talk about your college experience, I was like, wow, th this woman had a very similar experience to me. You know, probably mine was not quite as free in a lot of ways. I only took a few classes past bail. Uh, and I did do the music major, that's sort of their standard music major, but I, it took me back hearing you talk about your own experience. Well, I should say there was a conflict because Kirkland had, you know, had had evaluations, you know, pass fail or whatever, but Hamilton did not. And the music classes were at Hamilton, the philosophy classes, whatever else. So it was a little bit of split. But then to see all that have to turn into grades anyway on a transcript to get into, you know, business school was amusing in and of itself. I never saw that transcript, actually. I have no idea what it said, but it worked. Yeah. <laughs> so you started in development at a time where basically the whole job was writing grants. You weren't courting individual donors at the time. No, so, no. Sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I was just saying, I had a chip on my shoulder about all of that because growing up in, uh, I mean, you're, you're touching a chord in some way. Growing up East, my sense was people, and it's not necessarily accurate, that people gave money in the things they believed in and for altruistic reasons, it wasn't transactional. But by the time coming to LA, it felt as though there was a different ethos and I didn't understand it very well of individual giving, which is that there's some transaction as a part of it. You, there was generosity, but it also came with perks, which I didn't quite understand that exchange. And perhaps it was something in my parents' life that I just didn't see but I kind of came kind of pure of heart. So I was very grateful that I wasn't responsible for individual donors in that first. It was a policy, it was more policy. I was promote, you know, on the advocacy side in those early days, you know, uh, Ernest Fleischman was very committed to, you know, public policy that supported the arts. So early on, I was involved in advocacy for the pots of money that in turn would support the arts. You know, at that point, somewhere early on, Ray, President Reagan was going to do away with the NEA, for instance. So there was a rally across the arts community, of course, to help that not happen. So that was a piece of my work early on to advocate for the pots of money from which I was also then writing grant applications. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So ultimately, you ended up in community engagement. How did you shift from development into this sector? Well, first of all, I'd, I'd say that in that the what I loved about doing the work for you know government, you know, we're applying for grants to some a few foundations, but mostly to the uh, levels of of government, local and and state and federal. Um, the kinds of things that public policy, pub, the public sector, the government sector wanted to fund were education and community programs. So pretty early on, I got involved with developing the programs that then we would apply for funds uh, to support. And also what was happening in LA by that time or around 1982, 84, whatever it was. And yes, I know you weren't born then. Um, the LA, the Los Angeles hosted the Olympics. And there was a huge, wonderful 
arts component to the Olympic Arts. There was an Olympic Arts Festival. And after the Olympic Arts Festival, there was an LA Arts Festival that was supported in LA. And in Peter Sellers was involved in that. And Peter Sellers was an advisor to the LA Phil artistically. And one of the things he did right within the arts festival in which the LA Phil sort of picked up on was decentralizing the arts. Peter recognized that all through LA arts, excuse me, all through LA County, there were artists. There were artists who had come from Cambodia and were, you know, living in Long Beach. There were, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm losing, I don't quite have the word, but not, you know, they're expert, there were there artists in other art forms other than Western classical art forms that were scattered throughout LA. And he uh, decentralized the arts festival and didn't put it all downtown in the big box sort of places where art happened previously. He made sure it was distributed and su supported and recognized throughout the county. And at the same time, that is when the LA Phil started what we called neighborhood concerts, which was to bring the Philharmonic as an orchestra into communities throughout LA. And that was something that I was um, responsible for at the time. Did that answer that question? Yeah, it's so interesting to me because I feel like anytime I talk to community engagement professionals, community engagement is so integral or su such a part of every other department of what's going on because it's it's kind of just what the orchestra what the entity is and development is tied to it and marketing is tied to it and artistic operations everything is tied to it and of course you know now for the majority um it is community engagement which is the term that is used in the field when we're talking about going into communities and creating partnerships and all these different things but for i feel like for a long time um the term used often was outreach. And I was wondering if you could kind of talk about going away from the term outreach and leaning more into the idea of community engagement and how those two things are different and why community engagement is maybe the more preferred term and way of thinking now. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. And I'm also wondering, is the terminology going to change again? I don't know how, you know, because you know, terminology evolves in in some way, but outreach so much it, what it is defined as a, in my mind because is a one way street. It's going. I have something, it's good, and you don't have it, and I want to give it to you, and that's what outreach is. It's not asking. It's not community. It's not having an, an, an a conversation. It's saying I got something good, and I'm gonna plot. I'm gonna just give it to you, and it's good for you. So. And I'm doing good, and I'm going to feel good because I'm I'm creating accessibility for something. Access was, a, you know, is still a viable word, and that's connected to outreach. One could say, but the one-way street of outreach is what is what we all find as unacceptable, um, and where engagement came into play. Um, what was fun for me around the neighborhood concerts is that you know where they came from to begin with was um big events that happened in LA there were you know there was earthquakes so the first thing that you know Ernest Lodge wanted to do was oh there's an earthquake we need some healing concerts oh there are the LA riots we need some healing concerts but uh you know how can we how can we participate in this 
civic event, how can this, this community-wide occurrence, he did not want the orchestra to stand on the sidelines of it. And um, it, so, so that, I mean, we'd started the neighborhood concerts before the civic unrest of the, uh, uh, in Los Angeles around Rodney King and all that had happened after the, um, after the, the determination that there was no fault in the police at that point. Um, and the only reason we could have concerts in different communities in this case, the Black and Korean community where there was conflict was because we'd already been in conversations in different communities, often using, I mean, one of the first places we went for those connections was through uh, uh, churches. Um, but we'd already started to have those conversations. We weren't coming in from nowhere. But even earlier than that, with Zubin Mehta and Calvin Simmons, a you know a generation before the LA Phil was known to do concerts in churches and with community choirs, um, Zubin Mehta led those, and they were uh, when, when I came to the Philharmonic, um, I forgot uh, Joe Moreland was on board, and he had started with Ernest something called the Minority originally called the Minority Musicians Training Program. Um, which changed and morphed in itself, but there were different ways of engaging that the Philharmonic already had the threads of and was prepared to evolve with the changing times too. That makes sense. I think this is remarkable because the podcast was started in 2020 <laughs> in large part as a response to the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, the, the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement uh, surrounding the death of George Floyd. But we look, those of us in the orchestra world, once we all sort of became aware of all of the issues that we were having surrounding engaging with our whole communities that we were a part of, we look at the LA Phil and you guys have been doing it for, a long, 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 long time. Mm -hmm. Do you know, it, it sounds like even before you were there, these efforts were being made. Is that without the Without a doubt, without a doubt. Cal Calvin Simmons was the assistant, I guess, or associate conductor at the time, uh, African-American. He died young in an, uh, in an accident, but he, he and Zubin were doing, you know, concerts both in, I mean, in, in prisons and through churches and were, had a great reputation, create a great relationship for having been doing those concerts. The problem was, if there was, you know, the problematic part was they, they did a set of concerts over a period of time and developed those relationships. Joe Westmoreland was a thread who was still a thread, a human who was still engaged in this work with the Philharmonic being, he was a music director of um, a prominent uh, black church in LA also, as well as working at the Philharmonic. Um, but in between, by the time I got there in 1980, those concerts had stopped for 10 years. The, the, the concerts in, in, in neighborhoods, in the churches and with choirs and with gospel choirs. Um, they they had they were not they'd stopped for a period of time. So the other reputation that an orchestra has 
is that it starts things and it stop things, stops things. And that's a tough lesson to embrace for all of us. And one of the things I noticed also in the early days of the work that I was doing is the Chicago Symphony had an, an amazing array of community and education programs. Probably things were still being talked about as outreach, but they were doing things that were really embedded, they felt embedded at the time into community settings, um, both concerts and music learning and whatever else. I can't remember the nature, the specific nature of them. They were there, they were, they were the envy, you know, of the world. You kind of, wow, they have something that's so good. And then the funding stopped and the programs went away. And that was a huge lesson too. That was a, you know, again, you know, you only do it, it, it you don't stop your orchestra, con you know, the, the, the orchestra is still playing. You still have your subscription concerts, but it, it was an odd lesson to me that in an orchestra, you know, the, the, of course the orchestra and the concerts and the subscription series and whatever else is, is a tight core, but to see everything else expendable around it is a problem for orchestras because everybody gets feeling periodically abandoned mm -hmm. and that's does not work well for as a a something you know in someone's body for you know for community engagement yeah. you did something we did something together we're not doing it anymore you don't have the money for it. we're not doing it again i've asked you to do something else could you come back whatever else you say no no i don't have the money goodbye i can't do it and then there is a break in the continuity and the relationship building and trust. Yeah, that's, I, we've had this conversation. There's been a few people on the podcast that we've talked to that um, Eric Gould is the person that comes to mind who we talk and they, he, he goes, you know, Rachel, in 1980, I was at a panel with a bunch of black composers about how do we make things more diverse? And, you know, we had that conversation and then it went and then in the early 2000s, I was on another panel and I was with a bunch of, you know, and so it's this cyclical nature. So we've talked about that a lot about the cyclical nature of it, but I don't think ever, no one's ever talked about how um, this, the scary nature of the fact that all of our other programs, right, that all of the community engagement programs, the educational programs are entirely like grant funded or, you know, it's it almost entirely grant funded and it's not it's very rare that those programs are built into the budget as budget line items that are not dependent upon when funding will come in. And it's scary as a professional working in that space to think if we don't get these funds, it's gone. And we, I can't, like, I'm going to be told it can't happen because we don't have the money for it. And so I think, you know, I don't know the answer to the question I'm posing now of how do we make them, how do we, why do we, you know, the next question was like, how, why is community important, community engagement important, why should we care? But I think maybe it's how do we make community engagement actually more embedded in what we're doing as organizations so it's not as easily expendable from a financial standpoint? It's a, it is a, it is a challenge for sure. And again, the LA Phil is in a I will call it in this case, a privileged place because of its overall business model that if nothing else includes the Hollywood Bowl. And so that means 10, you know, for the, and I don't know if the, if the Canton Orchestra is year round or is, you know, per service or what it's, what the contract looks like. 
we're per service. service. Union per service. We're group five in the League of American Orchestras. Budget uh, ranking. One through eight, <laughs> tiers one through eight. We're group five. Mm -hmm. And uh, we do only generally perform uh, September through May. But mm -hmm. we do have a summer program, again, funded by grants that happens in the, in the parks in the summer. But even that, to your point, we used to have a full orchestra concert in the park and on Labor Day weekend, and there wasn't funding for that this year. So that, I was very bummed because yeah. I really enjoyed conducting it, and unfortunately, we're not doing it anymore. Right. And so, so the, the the problem is here. I don't have I don't have the answers. I I recognize, but I, I in the path of the LA Phil, um. I, I recognized its its unique position, which is that with the summer means that's three months a year, you know, and the orchestra is, a, you know, a, a annual, it is employed annually for, for throughout the whole year. Um, that we're the three months of not losing money. I mean, you know, an orchestra, it is, it is creating, you know, the, the, the bowl season creates excess revenue over expense since it seats 18,000. And we present not just orchestra concerts that may have six or eight or 11 or 12,000 people on rare occasion, uh, but other kinds of music also that then go into the overall, you know, revenue for the Philharmonic. That means that it, it has. You know, it, it 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 has it, it. I mean, I think we have the highest percentage of earned we. I still call it say we two and a half, almost three years <laughs> retired. Um, more, you know, more earned revenue than any than most orchestras because of that unusual business model. That makes sense yeah. or business reality because of yeah. the bowl. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's something to think. You know. I used to be manager of education community engagement. Now I'm president and CEO. So I used to see just the education budget, right? I used to just see my budget and see how that works. And now I'm looking at the full budget and going, oh, crap, how do we, how do orchestras do this when for so many orchestras, you know, the model that we have is the cost to put on a concert versus how much we sell in tickets is just not there, right? So we're, we're losing money on classical concerts so i you know how do we find our ways into spaces where we're creating enough you know revenue and we're creating enough stable forces of revenue that we don't have to worry you know if it goes away we're you know out of luck how do we get to that space so that we can have more stable engagement programming and so that's a big question on my mind that i also i don't have an answer to and i'll <laughs> And maybe one day someone will, and it'll be great. Well, in my mind, I hope you have a very, very supportive board, an enlightened board, and a board that's not only interested in the orchestra, um, but is also interested in other civic, you know, other other um, civically minded aspects of your city and county that they're engaged in in some way or that you've also developed more board members who have a broader sense beyond just the orchestra um, who can be kind of more supportive and help deepen connections in other parts of this you know the fabric of 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 canton that 
help the orchestra be seen slightly differently because I think orchestras, we all exist in a bubble and breaking through the bubble is not an easy thing to do. In the end, we, you know, I, I, you know, we're, we're, somewhere where we are an uh, I know a bubble a bubble unto ourselves you know we we are our our own echo chamber I guess is what I'm mm -hmm. somehow. yeah pretty much so um I so I don't know whether there are other bonds that you that you have in 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 Canton with education and arts education and how that that how that thread works or the arts community as a whole that is also whatever you're struggling in terms of resources the rest of the arts community is also struggling yeah. so the question i off i have is how working together every you know every working together can accomplish more than working on on one's own yeah exactly yeah um I, I'd like to, you've used the word civic a lot in this conversation, um, and I don't think it's a term, you worked in kind of the governmental and the civic space as well, but, you know, you, what is this idea of civic mindedness? What is, what, what should orchestras be thinking about when it comes to civic responsibility and being civically minded? beyond just being our own organizations? Because I don't think I've heard people people use the term civic when talking about an orchestra's responsibilities. Well, you know, I, I again, let me say that it, it come for, for the LA Phil, it comes from a very specific place because at the music center, we're in a county owned building, a county owned facility. We, are, we have a lease with the county to produce concerts in order for the county to make revenues off the parking lot underneath the concert hall. Um, there need to be events, not just, you know, people parking for jury duty. Um, <laughs> so we, we automatically have, you know, we're, we're in public land, you know, not to mention, you know, land that is, you know, the first peoples who live there and all that, um, and all that that implies, but also the Hollywood Bowl, the Hollywood Bowl is a county park. Our lease is not actually through the music center and the county as it is down for the winter season. It is with the, it's our lease is with the county parks department. So we can't afford, we, we, we need to be in, in my mind, that's how I'm using civic engagement. So we need to be engaged. We have a relationship. We have a contract that we have, you know, we have a contract, a lease and and we they, they have expectations and we have expectations and we need to deliver on them on both sides of it the first you know and and but that grew up naturally i mean you know the la phil or an orchestra with a different name but it, essentially la phil and then you know 100 years ago or whatever was playing for the easter sunrise service and playing in the dell which is what became the hollywood bowl when it was then constructed and, in different ways, and I can't remember all the calendar years of it, but let's say it started in um, the in 1920 or so, um, and then there was a merger of different organizations. Always, though, the, the the land was given to the county initially for the Easter Sunrise Service and for some concerts, um, and. The first lease, what happened to, and, and it was Ernest Fleischman at the time, it was the, the CEO or the executive director, you know, titles of everything. I can't remember everybody's title anymore. Uh, it, the first lease was that the Hollywood Bowl was leased to the LA Phil for a dollar a year. 
Wow. But that was because it was an underperforming county asset. It was, you know, I don't know if you know the term white elephant, but it was, it was like, it was, it was sitting there and nothing, not enough was happening. So they, you know, they, they leased it to the Philharmonic for 30 years at a dollar a year with the expectation of a couple of things that any, all of revenues from parking lots would go to the county. Um, and the, the county maintained the park aspect of the Hollywood Bowl. And then the Philharmonic would put on concerts and the Philharmonic then expanded, you know, concerts from two nights a week to three nights a week to four, five, six nights a week over time. So by the time of the second lease, it was, oh, no, 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 no. It's not a dollar a year. The second lease, which is an amazing sort of thing. But and I say it with great respect to say that this is why the L.A. Phil uniquely can't separate itself from being civically engaged. You have elect, you know, you have county supervisors who also, you know, represent the bowl specifically and 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 understand the the Hollywood Bowl is on the county seal is what I'm also originally with the cross for the Easter sunrise, which at some point was taken off. But the Hollywood Bowl is on the seal for the county. So it has been seen for, you know, more than a century as an important asset to Los Angeles and the LA Phil is the steward of it. The second lease was such that the Philharmonic from revenues from putting on concerts would pay, give, give back to the county enough that the county could run the park, pay for the park on an annual basis. So there's no taxpayer money going to run the park on an annual basis because of the activity of the LA Phil at the bowl. That's a very unusual situation, it's to say the least. And I and I think the next lease won't look could also have some changes because it's it, you know that people understand that while we look at our budget on an annualized basis, that there are a lot of resources, you know, a lot of money is generated putting on these concerts successfully at the Hollywood Bowl. Um, the, the, I mean, I can go on. I mean, the county also then, you know, asked the Philharmonic to, you know, in the last few years, the Ford Theater, which is a small theater where there's a passion play that was produced there for a hundred years across the street from where the Hollywood Bowl is. So we now have a big grand, big, you know, venue there, we, the LA Phil, and then across the street, there's the Ford Theater, which puts on small, more intimate, but which gives the Philharmonic a way again of using its expertise to produce and present a whole, you know, with a whole different mission on behalf of the county and people of Los Angeles. But in at the Ford Theater, it is it, the the presentations tend to be more local and represent artists and artistry from all different kinds of music and performing arts forms, well beyond what an orchestra does. Wow. So uh, along the lines of being civically engaged, you were the uh, human relations commissioner for the city of Los Angeles. Uh, mm -hmm. In addition to what you did with the LA Phil, I assume. So tell us a little bit about that. You worked under four different mayors. Well, I, I, you know, to say that I worked as a, is a, I, I, there's, you know, the staff that's attached to a commission. And so then we are, you know, a set of people that sit there and go and twiddle our thumbs or, you know, listen to presentations about issues of surveillance or, um, 
LGBT. And then, you know, when I started, Q was not a part of that, you know, things evolved. And then, you know, police relations with uh, communities that those are those were kind of issues that came and there was you know a lot of study and and acknowledgement of anniversaries related to LA civil disturbance. I sat on it because uh, because th that's something that we we in the arts wanted to begin to think about doing is have you know be in be involved in other parts of the civic life of of our communities. And so that just came through at having a network of people that that I knew and someone said, why don't you do this? You know, you know, I, you know, I think it came from I felt as though I had a good overview for the city and county of LA coming from the neighborhood concerts. When you produce concerts and you're always, you know, I, I don't know how COVID is a whole other thing that, you know, is a heart is heartbreaking because I don't know how you do this work well or in this way in COVID, because if my my initial way of engaging is to show up in other people's communities, in at other people's meetings, with other people's agendas, with other people's priorities, Zoom does not do it and uh, in any way, shape or form, or it's not a um, it's not a vocabulary that I felt I could ever have been successful in. So it, you know the you know COVID and COVID and my retirement kind of coincided, which I in in some way I was grateful for because I don't know how you do doing engagement work under COVID is 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 challenge more challenging in my mind. How do you right? think doing that humans relations work with the city informed then what you were doing with the orchestra? Was it, not as deeply as you would like to think, or you know, <laughs> ideally as I would like to think, or whatever else. I met some wonderful humans, you know, and and you know, and then so it's just a network of people and who are involved in different things. So, it you know, at some point when let's say one of our Yola students actually needed a you know a, a particular kind of lawyer related to uh, something, there was a lawyer who was on the Human Relations Commission that you kind of make connections that way. But in terms of the relation, I would say it was more personal and internal than how I could directly benefit or link the Philharmonic and the work of the Human Relations Commission. Mm -hmm. It was too diffuse and too, it didn't work that way well. Got it. Well, let's talk about something now that is near and dear to my heart and uh, you brought it up. So let's go for it. Youth Orchestra LA, now serving almost 2,000 <laughs> students. Uh, part of my role here at the Canton Symphony Orchestra is I am the music director of our Youth Symphonies program, which has been around, I believe, since 1961 here. Wow. It's a long, long running. And uh, well, Canton is a lot smaller than LA. We have about just under 100 in our program. But um, we are nonetheless proud of it. So I'm curious, how did Yola get started? And what was your involvement? You said that you worked with a whole team of people. It wasn't just you yourself. But tell us a little bit about this program, how it got started and how you were involved. I and, will do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, and I mentioned this, like we get to we get L.A. back to back in this season. Because next episode is with some people from Yola. Um, so I'm really excited that we're talking with you to get the origin story. <laughs> and then we can talk with them who are currently working with Camille. And I think a current student is going to join. Right. 
to talk about it. So I'm super, I'm very interested in this answer because it's going to help us out a lot for the next conversation we're going to have. Okay, great. Well, first of all, that, that that she wants to have a student is indicative of a direction that Yola has evolved into after you know it started in 2007, which is giving student voice. Um, again, in you know, you think of engagement with the way we talked about one way or two way street or an outreach or whatever else, but in this case, it's empowering students to have voice themselves in relation to what happens. Because I'm sure, and I'm jumping into the middle of something here, Matthew, but. I imagine as any orchestra and, uh, you know, you, you, there are times when you bring your students into a board situation or whatever else and they perform for the board and they may sit at a table at a lunch or a dinner afterwards and, and the board peppers them with questions, but, the, but on rare occasion are the students comfortable enough or feeling they're given permission enough to actually ask the board questions and that, and to kind of ask what they, they, they because they're curious they want to know how how board got into their positions of influence and what their pathway was and rarely in those circumstances have has that element been designed or emphasized or whatever into how the event goes um so i i so to me that camille wanted to have a student there is really key you know really important and shows where the evolution of of um of Yola. The LA Phil in its earlier days did have youth orchestras attached. The Young Musicians Foundation and another orchestra, there were two big major youth orchestras and they had a connection to the LA Phil. Then they were spun off independently as their own 501c3s. Um, before my time, before I, which is, you know, beginning in 1980, so it was even before that. Um, and, and as in Canton or San Francisco, uh, it is not, I mean, it's less uncommon if an orchestra is going to have a youth orchestra, you're taking, I assume, the best players that you find in, in, for in, amongst young people in your community, which is, which is admirable and great and works as, as it should and, and as, as a wonderful thing in a community. What the LA Phil was able, able to do because they're, they're, they're a lot of youth orchestras in LA, not just one, but like 17, 18 or a zillion of them. And they are in some cases, you know, paid, I don't know what your, the circumstances are with yours, but the musicians often, the young musicians, the families pay to be a part of it. Um, That's exactly what we do, yes. Right, and 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 I'm, I'm not making, there's no, I'm, I'm saying this out judgment, but I'm saying that the, but the Philharmonic had the, the position the privilege again and you know the circumstances to be able to turn that model on its head and yes it came from the you know impending or the desired arrival of Gustavo Dudamel as our music director knowing that El Sistema was so important to him and 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 what how El Sistema was serving young people across Venezuela and it was an it was a program for people who did not otherwise have the resources. And, and in the schools in Venezuela, another piece of it is they ended at noon. So in a certain way that their after school music programs five days a week were connected to the need for childcare, right? You have working parents, your school day ends at, at noon, you have no money, you have limited financial resources. What do you do with your kids? 
And this is something that got developed, you know, again, out of public policy. I mean, Dr. Abreu came from the health department, not from education, not from arts, not from culture. It was the health department. It was, he got the funding to build healthier communities initially, which is kind of mind boggling. All right. So cut to LA and the LA Phil decided that to, you know, that, that what, you know, what El Sistema was and, and what Gustavo was intrigued by was something the Philharmonic um, should get involved in, should start. And so with the then education director and my job at that point was to understand the lay of the land to a certain extent and to see if there were partners from education and from nonprofit organizations with whom we could work to establish uh, uh, we had it, we, you know, there wasn't, there was no name or a different name before Yola, but I can't remember what it was, um, to start um, an ongoing program in, in, in some where we could bring kids in to learn instruments uh, in, to begin with and to model a program like El Sistema. And, you know, that started in 2006 but we also banded together we knowing this this is the civic part in a different way going back to your previous question knowing that the Simone Boulevard Orchestra was going to be coming to Los Angeles to perform in Walt Disney Concert Hall in 2007 the CBS 60 Minutes program had already aired there's a lot of attention and interest in this we knew that the light would be shine, shined on um, music orchestras, music learning on all of this. And we were very cognizant that it should not all fall to the LA Phil. All that light would be wasted if it just shone on the LA Phil. So we, before they arrived, we gathered together all, you know, for almost a year, it felt like a, a, all, all of the players in the nonprofit music world that we could, who were engaged in youth music learning to see what we could you know, begin to accomplish together um, or what we could expand, what we could learn about uh, so that um, it, it wasn't about the Philharmonic, it was about the whole music learning community. And a number of programs came out of that and were strengthened by it. And everyone, you know, there's a photo from that time when, it, you know, a lot of, you know, it, it, Deborah Border was then the music director, excuse me, the CEO, and you know, all of the different people, you know, about 30, 40 people from the arts community, the music arts community were on stage kind of welcoming and you know the Simone Boulevard is there and to begin to get a sense of what we could all learn from what their model was, if that makes sense. Yeah. That's and I've been I've been lucky enough to visit the new uh, facility in Inglewood. Because uh, that was part of our the the pre day at the for the the mm -hmm. conference last year, and it was so wonderful and beautiful and um, such a nice space. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong. It, it Yola to me, it's it's based in the Inglewood neighborhood. And it is it really a neighborhood program, or do students come from all over LA, or is it mostly students who are busing distance, walking distance, driving distance, kind of? Because it's 2,000 students, which is a lot of kids, right? So, oh, wait, there's oh, a, oh, yeah. You know, we, when I say we started in 2007, 
I mean, the Yola Center is a center. There is a program, a local program for Inglewood and, and within you know, three, four, five, it doesn't need to be the five mile radius, but around Inglewood. But that's the fifth, sixth, fifth, pro, fifth program. There are, there are four other program sites. Yes, yes. Right? there's the Inglewood one. And what are the other sites? Now, you know, you're taxing my age. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, but the, <laughs> the first one was the Expo Center. The first one was Expo Center. Okay. Uh, the second one was Heart of LA, which is in the MacArthur Park area of LA and has a community center focus. We started with community centers rather than schools. Mm. The third one originally was located at the LA County High School for the Arts because the county supervisor very much wanted to make sure there was a program in our district because the kids, I'm talking fast now, um, the, the, the kids who went to the LA County High School for the Arts by audition or whatever. They, they, they were kids to come from all over the county, but in music, they were not coming from her district, from the first district. They did not have the training that kids from other parts of the county, wealthier parts of the county, public or private schools could come into a this wonderful countywide art school. And she said, whoa, 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 I, you know, you've got, you know, you've got, you know, um, you've got uh, a YOLA program in South LA and you've got one in the, in, in the, in, around MacArthur Park, which is not too far from, it, it's, a, it's east of downtown and in, in, in um, a Central American and Korean neighborhood um, where more people walk as opposed to drive in that that's really kids came from very close by. What are you doing for me in East LA is basically what she was saying, which is where Cal State LA is and where the high school for the arts is. And so we started it, you know, with the principal and with a joint venture agreement with every, we started a program on the campus of Cal State LA, of which is where the LA County High School for the Arts building is uh, in their after school hours that were underutilized at that point. I won't go into the whole journey of that, but um, that program had to move a couple times, but still to serve the first district. Yeah. So that's the program. It's now at Taurus High School, Public Arts High School. Um, another program we also wanted, you know, knowing how kids feed one, you know, I don't know how it is in Canton, but do kids go in the public schools go to one elementary school feed to one middle school feed to one high school? There are a lot, a lot of, of, a lot elementary, of elementary schools, schools uh, less middle schools, one high school. And well, really two high schools, because early college are kind the of. different yeah, buildings. Yeah. yeah, but they compete in sports under the same team as the same the one, one school, one yeah, even though they're these two different campuses yeah. that are serving two different student three populations. Campuses. Oh, where's the McKinley downtown. Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. Campuses. So, but Matthew, can you tell where the stronger music programs are by where kids come? You know where yeah. kids are. Yes. Yeah, your yes. your point of the the school for the arts being there, and then none of the kids showing up for music from that district. Our youth symphony, the students who are part of our youth, we're we're directly next to Canton City Schools, right? So our building touches is a part of the Canton City School District. And our the representation of the number of stu students from Canton City Schools in the Youth Symphony has gotten better, but it was by no means a, a good percentage, maybe one or two. Well, and, and I'll say further than that, that there is participation from the Canton City Schools, but almost never in our top orchestra. The top orchestra is kids from the suburbs. Yeah. The intermediate and beginner orchestra there's a lot more kids from the city. Mm -hmm. 
So yeah, what you said there really struck me as as ringing true for us here. Well, because again, because LA is so huge, you know, four million people in the city and nine or ten million in the county, um, and with lots of youth orchestras, it gave the Philharmonic the ability to turn the model upside down and to be. And we had board members who were very committed to us establishing a, a this program. And you don't start with an orchestra when you're starting kids, of, you know, in our case, where they were six and seven years old. And the program was to give kids free instruments and free lessons. I mean, and, and that the kids would be in the program three or four days a week or five, you know, almost five days a week plus Saturday. Not in every case, and certainly not when they were beginning, but it was a multiple day and weekend commitment. And we partnered first off with a wonderful nonprofit in LA, still very strong today, Harmony Project, that was doing what we couldn't do quite because they already had teaching artists and they were already teaching young kids and they were already providing free instruments themselves we partnered with them so that we could expand together. And in this community center where they opened the door, but our affiliation with it really um, excited the Rec and Parks Department of the city of LA to, to allow a big orchestra music learning program to be in a recreation and sports oriented center. Uh, and we went there because the community center also had its own board. So they had some, they were developing resources beyond the city resources for the park. And that's where the first YOLA program started and grew and had three to 400 students as part of it. And so, you know, some of the, the, the person, one or it's very possible that one of the people that you're dealing with at YOLA at, Ingl at, at, um, at in the Inglewood Center is someone who is a graduate of the program. Yeah. Right, Car uh, excuse me. Um, so, so that's, you know, Diana, Diana has two other sisters who also are graduates in the program. Um, and it's what the board members helped us with in the starting of that was, if we're going to start it, we're never going to abandon it. Because in our initial model for it, thinking again of that early funding crunch of, oh, you know, orchestra start something and then they're likely to, you know, run out of funding, chase change, whatever else. The board member said, who actually it's Tom Beckman, whose name is on the, you know, who, who was off the board for a while and came back. Um, if the Philharmonic starts something and uh, the original business plan, oh, we'll, we'll be, we'll partner with Harmony Project for, you know, five years, you know, and we'll, we'll give them, we'll, we'll, this is the financial commitment and instruments and conductor and the, this and that we will be responsible for and they'll teach lessons and we will work with them for five years, help them build up their capacity, raise money, and then we'll slowly move out and start another center. You know, we thought we'd do a serial sort of thing of working with a community partner, help develop their strength and then slowly move on to another. And the board members said, once you start something, there's no community organization that is as strong as the symphony. And once the LA Phil starts something and it cannot afford to have it fail in any way. And so the Philharmonic needs to be ongoing, the 51% participant manager, you know, key manager of the program, no matter who we partnered with. Yeah. Um, yeah. So 
there, you know, there, the, the, what, what we didn't know when we started, Matthew, though, is since there were so many other youth orchestras, what would happen when kids went into middle school or when they went into high school? Would they want to join one of the other youth orchestras? But what we found, and this is interesting to me about community, was that the students, the young musicians were very connected to one another. And the sense of community was so strong that there, and we had two orchestras at the time, uh, um, uh, a more advanced orchestra and a, and a less advanced orchestra within the model of what we were putting into Expo Center, which was a surprise to their founder, because I said, you have an orchestra, why do you need two? Why, what, what are you talking, we, we, we can't give you that much space. Um, but the, the, what, the community of students, their support of one another was so strong, they didn't want to go anywhere else, largely. And some stayed not, you know, they were older, but they stayed in the middle orchestra because it was community. And then some were moved to more advanced and there were ways, you know, as we had more sites, then we had our own more advanced orchestra and we did, a, you know, orchestras did a tour and orchestra did a tour of California, which was, you know, fun and exceptional in its own, in its own way. Um, so there's a lot, you know, I don't know. That's a lot. I'm, I'm, I'm throwing a lot at you at the same time. No, I think it's fantastic. It is so interesting and so different from what we do. And so amazing that at the Yola has found such a niche in the LA community in, in a place where there are so many youth orchestras and it really, I think it's, it's incredible. So it's, thank you it's for been wonderful. It, it, it's been wonderful and inspiring for sure. And working with, you know, the communities and, and parents has been quite wonderful. You know, it's been remarkable. You'll hear more about it from, from Camille and whomever the student is and Camille, you'll bring her, will bring the experience to you from, you know, from uh, Baltimore, which is a whole different experience that she brought into what would be, you know, the, the leadership of Yola. She is the overall director of a manager of Yola and not only the Beckman Yola Center, but the, 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 the again, the, 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 LA Phil, Yola is not an attachment out here. It is smack yeah. in the heart of. Yeah. And so, you know, when the LA Phil tours, there's a, of late prior COVID, but still imagine beyond. And we still did pull everybody together this past summer for the summer national programs. Um, Yola, an ensemble, an orchestra from Yola has traveled to has been part of the, the LA Phil International Tours, which is also kind of a remarkable thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I just love that it, it, in LA, it is like, I, people have described it as like the beating heart of the orchestra right now. And it's like, it is such, it is that, you, we talk about the subscription core stuff, like it's core, it's part of that core, which is just so unique. Um, and I, I know we're getting towards the end of our time, but I, I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing, now that you have, you, I'm putting retired in quotes because you still do so much. <laughs> you still do so much and show up to so many things. But now that you've, in quotes, finished your career, how, looking back, are there moments that you really remember or, or what was maybe a through line for you that kept you motivated and doing this work that is hard and 
tries to be cyclical, but you got to try to keep it from not being. And is there something for you that kind of kept you going as you did this really important work? There are a couple things to say. One, I have, I, I think I have the chemical natural makeup to stay in one place. A lot of people do not have that. I, I mean, it's, you know, we all have different amounts of whatever or tendencies towards being optimistic, pessimistic, depressed, not depressed. I, I'm just have whatever my chemical makeup, I can, I can have been able to start the Philharmonic and let that be a place that changes under my feet. I've learned to surf. Working for different executive directors was, was an adjustment each time, but you, the, the um, each time there was a carrot, you know. I mean, you know, if I started in development, but I mean, and in, in the in the fundraising, but doing the neighborhood concerts and having a way to be grounded in LA, which is so big and unwieldy. But I got to know different neighborhood communities because I had an intentionality about it that kept me going for a while. The building of Walt Disney Concert Hall, which is about to be twenty years old, so you know, it's kind of crazy was, you know, was a key driver. It's like, whoa, how can you leave before there's, you know, Walt Disney Concert Hall built? Uh, and then the transition from Esapeca to uh, Gustavo Dudamel was was monumental. I, you know, Esapeca is the best and most wonderful human ever. And, and um, you know, just I've been able to work at the Philharmonic when it was kind of on a steady path like this. You know, it just kept growing and changing and evolving. And I had the privilege, it's an, I, I don't know if I'm misusing that word or not, but to be able to kind of work through it all. Also, as you get older, I had the privilege of working with younger people all the time. I mean, I'm, I'm close with my kids, That don't get me wrong, but it is really wonderful to have working relationships with people of different generations. And that kept me going too, um, in some way. So it's been good, I was lucky. Yeah. Well, before we let you go, we're going to ask the question that we ask every guest at the end of every podcast episode. And it's very open-ended. So answer how you will. How do we orchestrate change? Well, I think I saw it in some way that you already, you know, you are in that space. What I'm hearing you know, what I heard Rachel say earlier what warmed my heart, which is you're working together. You're not working isolated from one another, right? You are, you are, you know, you, you work as, I know that's been a cultural, a kind of a cultural way of being that the Philharmonic had to overcome periodically, which is marketing worked in marketing and artistic worked in artistic and education worked in education and then you know, musicians were over here or whatever, but the um, not working in isolation and kind of Across silos is one way to be able to move, you know, different priorities and kind of progress to places that you want to be. Um, that's one day, one way to orchestrate change, and the other is to listen. You know, be in spaces where you can listen to other voices outside the bubble somewhere. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I always think that um, the more I'm, the more we can work together and listen to each other. Um, there's always going to be someone smarter than me. There's always going to be someone with a different idea than me. There's, you know, there's always someone who can add so much value to what you've got. You just have to ask. Um, and so um, it's, you've been such a kind of beacon of that kind of in the community engagement community. You don't have, you have no idea how many people when I first started working were like, 
Brittany Worsen, Brittany Worsen, that your name just gets said so often because you are that listener who you find the space and then you sit and you listen and you make these connections. And I just want to tell you how much uh, we all appreciate you and how much it means that you came and talked with us today. It means a lot. That's so kind. Thank you so much. Well, it's my pleasure. It's great. You know, I've kind of been in a place of not thinking, not not being as active this, but you've got me on a day where later in the day we'll be doing some interviews for the, you know, for the fellowship program that started, you know, yeah. you know, that's just getting off the ground since my retirement, which I'm thrilled about too. Because it's again looking at the next generation of who's going to be these people love, you know, the arts and whatever, and you know, creating access points for everybody is really exciting for me. Well, Lenny Borston, thank you so, so, so much for joining us today on our podcast. Well, thank you. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you very much, Rachel, for reaching out. And can I say reaching out? Yes, for engaging me in this. How's that? Um, <laughs> and I'm so glad that you're talking to Camille and the student next week. That makes me very happy, too. It's great. Lenny Borston, formerly Director of Government and Community Affairs and many other things before that at the L.A. Phil. Orchestrating Change is a production of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. Our theme music was composed by Eric Gould and performed by Derek Snyder and Tim Adams. Our audio engineer is Nathan Maslick. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.